everyone, welcome to the 54th episode of The Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me is demonic attorney, Brian Gottlieb. Yeah, I'm going to come up with a spicy uh, a spicy name for our use on the, uh, the Zencaster program that we use to record the cast every week, just to get you off guard. I really like to set you off balance right from the start. Uh, demonic attorney is nice. Is that is that in any way reflective of how you're feeling with the job recently or... No, I actually what I what I used to do was much closer to a demonic attorney. I feel like that's an what I figured. Attorney these days, yeah, I, I'm doing the good work these days, but uh, I, I still, you know, it's the only attorney in magic, so I still like it a lot. Yeah, we need some uh, angelic attorney in unstable or something. But sure, and you know, unstable was a big hit for me. There's squirrels, raccoons, like some of my favorite things in the world. So they're really coming through for me. For you know, I haven't read any of the card text, but I saw pictures, and I'm really excited about it. When's your birthday? It just passed. It's October 28th. Uh, okay. Well, that that would be a long time, I think, for you to wait for me to get you like a box of Unstable for your birthday or something. So. <laughs> that is, I'm sure I'll have moved on by then. I won't be interested anymore. <laughs> oh, you will, man. You'll start cracking packs, getting squirrel tokens. <laughs> You'll be all about it. Probably. I, I actually was thinking about looking into the original art, and then I started finding out how much original art costs, and I, I backed off a little bit. Yeah, I've, I've gone down that rabbit hole a couple times, too. All right, so today... Brian had another great idea for an episode where we could just discuss like our strengths and weaknesses and kind of like coach each other through them and just talk about stuff. And I actually think that not only is that a great idea, but like, I think that we could just spend hours talking about our weaknesses. So maybe we'll save the strengths for another, another day, I guess. Yeah. I like that approach. And I I actually think that I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's more fruit to be gained by analyzing our weaknesses. I think it's always good to take stock of your weaknesses, evaluate them, think about how to move forward from them. Not to say that, you know, looking at each other's strengths and trying to kind of, you know, me trying to ape your strengths, you trying to ape my strengths is certainly a good exercise as well. But I like starting with the weaknesses too. Yeah, me too. I mean, the, the strengths thing feels like I would just be sitting there like trying to pat myself on the back, you know? Yeah, we have to we have to downplay our abilities first and then we're able to have a whole cast where we just exalt our virtues to the entire thing. Word. Okay. Do you want to get to the good stuff? Do you want to start at the top of the list or the bottom of the list? Because you're definitely going first. Yeah, I'm going to start with my my biggest weakness. And it's one that I kind of think defines me as a player in a lot of ways. It, it is also simultaneously a strength, I think, but it really manifests. And, and when it does, it's very clear that it's a weakness in my game that I have to shore up. And that's that I often find myself too focused on coming turns and kind of too far ahead in the pace of the game. And this focus causes me to lose what's actually on board and make an absolutely boneheaded mistake. Like one that (laughs) if an outside observer was watching, they'd be like, wow, this guy just has absolutely no idea how to play magic. And it even something like this even happened to me this weekend where I was I was playing a match of Teamer versus Blue White God Pharaoh's Gift. And I was in a really bad position, but I had kind of like figured out this really complex line where it gave me a shot to draw to like a runner runner three turns down the road. And I was super excited about it. And so I made the play in that fashion and my opponent just went ahead and embalmed his angel of sanctions. That was in the graveyard that I completely forgot about and won the game on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) It's like after I had tanked for five minutes to find this great play and I had just missed something that was blatantly, you know, revealed information. So, so yeah, that's, that's my defining weakness is an inability to really focus on what's directly in front of me at the moment. So two things kind of stick out to me here. It's like, I certainly suffer from some amount of tunnel vision. 
a lot of that has to do with like my, like what shortcuts my mind has created for like what cards do. Yes. And the other thing is like, do you think that there is necessarily a need to plan three turns ahead at all times? Or do you think that that is a thing that you think that you're, you're capable of doing? So therefore you do it. And do you consider that to be like the hallmark of a great player or something? Is that why you try and emulate that and go down that whole, that whole path or what? I don't know that there's like, I wouldn't say that's something I'm always doing. It feels like I do turn it on in the moments where it's correct to do so. But just at the expense of, of what's on board, it's not like I'm really trying to emulate anything. It's just like there's so many games of magic that are won by being able to successfully plan ahead. And, and anytime you're playing a game of imperfect information with random draws, it's kind of like you're just making branching decision trees and trying to figure out how you're going to adapt to each one of those branches as it presents itself. <laughs> you know, as I describe that process, it kind of sounds insane because you start thinking about moving down that rabbit hole. And it's it's clear to see how I can get so far from what's actually on board. I see what you're saying. Maybe one of the simplest cleanups is just like, when do I have to turn on this part of my magic game? When should I really be looking a few turns ahead? And when should I be focusing on what's being presented on the board at the moment? This might kind of deviate us into strengths territory a little bit. But one of the things that I think that I am pretty good at is just being able to constantly update basically like the the image of like what is going on in the game and like the things that matter like with everything my opponent does like my mind just like is able to update that i i figure that like at times i'm definitely thinking far ahead like i am trying to make sure that like you know i i basically don't do the same thing as you or that like I don't miss like an attack for two that ends up being like super relevant three turns down the line or whatever, you know, like I'm trying to do that. I'm able to do that because I don't necessarily have to think so much about like the here and now just because like it is it is so intuitively happening. So do you think that you have to use like a bunch of brain space to actually do that constantly, like continually update like what's happening in the game in the here and now or? Yeah, I think if I'm being honest about my ability i've seen people play who when and then discuss with them after the game and you watch them play and they're kind of like savants right like their play is just natural and when you ask them to explain something sometimes they can't and it's because they've internalized a lot of the processes that you're talking about right now to such a degree that they're just completely natural they're not even considering these decisions like i think seth manfield has a reputation for kind of being like that uh i know when i used to play a lot with dan jordan he was someone who couldn't explain anything to you in the world but you watched him play and his play was always tight he always had his like turn to turn play absolutely perfectly mapped out and i don't think that's me i think i do require a lot of active brain power to be able to kind of assess a battlefield so when i take some of that brain power and move it five turns down the road i'm not applying the right amount to what's currently happening yeah uh other people just kind of like fun facts other people that have that sort of power are shahar yes adam your chick cory bowmeister like the these are dudes who you watch play and, and like you said they're just savants right and then you're like oh hey that was like really interesting why'd you do that and they're like i don't know you know you know what's funny too the, the those people you mentioned they're all approximately the same age i think and i think they grew up with magic almost all of them or grew up like with that style of game whereas i'm a little bit older i started playing games i started playing tcgs when they came out but i was already like probably 12 13 at the time and kind of my brain didn't form around tcgs maybe i'm just making excuses because i'm an idiot but whatever it is that's kind of my theory on it and, and i don't have that same level of just being an absolute savant like the people you listed do yeah so well how, how do you think this sort of thing translates to something like league 
I, I'm not great at league either. I, okay. I think when pe- when people find out like my rank in league, it's lower than they would expect. And it frustrated me for a long time. I think some of it was, again, I didn't grow up playing RTSs. Like I grew up playing Mario and I was a really good video game player. Uh, I'm really good at like fighting games, but, but league took me a long time to learn. And I think I've gotten to an okay place where I'm like, you know, probably like in the top 20% of league players. But for me, that feels really low. Like I expect kind of a level of excellence from myself and I haven't achieved that in league. We just always want to be the best at whatever we're doing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm certainly nowhere near the best at League of Legends. When I think about that kind of like active thinking and being able to reassess the battlefield at every second, maybe it is just something I'm lacking. And maybe it's something that I should take a more proactive stance in kind of training. But I don't know how I do to do that at this point. Like I've played magic for 22 years. It's kind of like, what haven't I been doing to kind of activate that part of my brain? I have some ideas. Uh, first of all, okay, so maybe like league is not a good comparison or like thing thing to relate to or whatever. But like, what about fighting games? Because like a lot of that seems like positioning and, you know, trying to anticipate your opponent's movements and like what's important and like how, how are you going to win? Is it like waiting for them to make a mistake or, or, you know, what's the deal? Like, it seems like you need to be constantly focused on the here and now and like sort of like magic, like certainly in like the, the next few seconds or whatever, like what's going to happen, right? Yeah. And you said something that actually really spoke to me. It, I, I don't think you referenced it specifically, but you kind of referenced a state of flow where like you're just anticipating everything and you're staying in the moment and focused. And when I am playing magic at my best and, and I'm talking about my weaknesses now and I'm downplaying myself, certainly. But I do believe that when I'm playing Magic at my best, I can be as good as anyone in the world. And I think if I didn't, I wouldn't I wouldn't be here talking to you. I wouldn't have Magic be such a large part of my life. But it does require me to hit the state of flow and to just be completely absorbed in the game and to just be locked in and focused. And maybe it's kind of, I shouldn't think about training myself in regards to Magic. I should just think about training my brain to hit that state of flow and that state of focus and maybe things like meditation or, you know, not to get too new agey in our approach to magic, but there are mental exercises you can do to kind of center yourself and to get yourself in a good mental space. And maybe that's something I should be exploring more. Yeah. I don't know. Like I, I can certainly relate to, you know, having flow or like being in the zone, like whatever you want to call it. And there's like no real concrete science behind it as far as like, you know, does meditation help or whatever? Like we don't know. It's just like a thing that ends up happening and we don't know like how or why. Like obviously if in whatever competition we're we're in, we could just like activate that at all times, it would be excellent, but we can't do that. And there have been feature matches where it's like I'm bored and I'm like looking around and seeing all the people watching. And then there are feature matches. Uh, one that I remember is like round six, GP New, Jer- GP New Jersey playing against Mike Sigrist. We finished the match. I look up and there's just like a hundred people watching us. And I had no idea because I was like so tuned in like as to what was in front of me that like I wasn't paying attention to any of the peripheral stuff that was happening. Yeah, I've I've been there where I literally do not have a concept of the world around me outside of the match of magic that I've been playing for like the last 15 minutes. I remember Pro Tour Magic Origins when I, I had just won the second draft to go to 10, 10 and 1. And I kind of looked up and all of a sudden I realized that like I was in a feature match in first place at a Pro Tour very deep into day two. And it just kind of all hit me in a second where all I had been thinking about the entire day was just like time to play magic. And what am I doing on this turn? And what am I doing on the next turn? Um, so you can certainly hit a zone where the rest of the world just kind of fades away. And I think that's where my best magic lies. Yep, absolutely. It, like, do you think that like kind of snapping out of that was somewhat in part due to like you kind of falling apart at the end of that pro tour or what? 
So it's hard to say. I had deck selection issues at that Pro Tour, so it's hard to say how much of it um, was just kind of out of my hands. And as the winner's metagame formed, I, I didn't have a very great shot at really coming through. But certainly my play also got worse throughout the day. And, you know, I kind of felt that disheartening feeling sinking in. So, yeah, that could have a lot to do with why I kind of fell apart at the end and was unable to convert. So one of the weird things that has happened to me a few times is that I'll be doing well in a tournament and then I will, we're, we're kind of like getting off base here a little bit, but like I will sit and kind of like reflect about like, you know, what my record is. It's like, oh, you know, like I'm, I'm 4-0 or something like nice. Like that's pretty awesome. And then just like, I will immediately lose. And I think, mm. I think to some degree it is just kind of like shattering whatever like zone or flow state that you were in because you just like, you know, stop being there and suddenly you're somewhere else, you know, and it's really hard to like get back into that. Yeah. I don't think you are going off base. I think that's kind of like exactly what this issue is about. And, you know, I did phrase it in terms of like what's happening in the game of magic, but as we talk through it, I'm realizing that this might be more of an issue of just focus and staying in the moment and, blocking out everything that isn't a game of magic, everything that isn't a magic decision, everything, all these ancillary factors in a tournament, like what's your record? What's going to happen if you win this tournament? What's your next step from there? You know, all that stuff, which really doesn't matter when you're just shuffling cards and playing a game of magic. I I think that's a good starting point for me to be able to get back to that point of focus and be able to evaluate the present turn as well as the future, because I just have a higher mental capacity when I'm only worried about a game of magic. Yeah, I, I definitely relate to that. And it's it's happened to me like a, f- a fair number of times where it's like I will reflect on my record or get distracted by something or even just like, you know, being in a game and having my opponent like maybe take too long on a certain turn or whatever. And I'll just like start looking around and start burning other matches and stuff. And generally that is th- like those are not the tournaments that I do well in. Yes, similar experience, 100%. And and you can almost feel it. It's like the air takes on a different quality around you when you've lost that. I mean, maybe I'm just going way too deep and displaying my mental infirmities, but everything feels different for me in the second that I lose that focus. So I, I don't know. I feel like this is a productive discussion because I'm kind of getting a better picture of what it takes for for me mentally to succeed at a magic tournament. Yeah. For me, it seems like, you know, like when you're in the zone or flow or whatever, like time passes fairly quickly, you know, like you, you, yeah. sit, you sit down to play a match and it's just like, you are so focused on the match and then it's over and you're just like, oh, like, you know, we've been playing for 40 minutes or whatever. And then like, you kind of just like snap out of it and you realize that like the world is actually happening around you. But like, yeah, for me being like in the match when I am there, it is not a matter of like, oh, I'm bored and like you know, watching the the seconds tick down on the clock and everything, like I am engaged and then Mm -hmm. time just seems to pass very quickly. To kind of move back to the direct issue of taking stock of a particular turn and the specific turn that you're in at the moment, nobody has ever answered this in the affirmative to me when I've posed this question, but do you have any kind of like checklist that you run through on any given turn? Um, Any kind of it's hard to define exactly what I'm looking for. Just like a set of operations you go through on every single turn to just check that you have a good and clear picture of what the board state is. Or is it just so ingrained that it's just like, there's the board? It's mostly intuition for me. And like, sometimes I slip up and get tunnel vision on something like what you're talking about, where you're like, all right, I have this great plan for three turns from now. And then it's just like, oh, I I forgot to like trigger my thing or whatever, you know, like you just get so focused on something else. So 
you know, like there's there's like the old chess adage where it's just like think until you found like the best play and then like also rethink to make sure it's the best play. And I kind of just like stop at the first one. It's like, yeah, I, f- I found a play. Okay, let's do it. Because my intuition is just generally like, yeah, like that looks good. But I almost never double check my work. See, that's crazy because I double and triple and quadruple check my work. And I mean, it's part of the reason why I'm a slow player, which if we want to talk about weaknesses, um, there's a very concrete and uh, clear one I can point to in my own game. And that's that I play at a glacial pace. And I know that. And I, I don't have to. I can turn it on where I play quickly, but I eliminate all those double, triple, quadruple checks from my game. And honestly, I don't have enough data to say if I'm playing better when I've removed those checks or when I'm just playing as careful and methodical as I possibly can. I don't know which is my best state. Sometimes one feels comfortable, sometimes the other feels comfortable. And I I can't really say when I choose to do either. Yeah, maybe maybe it is just like you taking forever is like a thing that kind of breaks that flow state, right? It could be. I, I don't know which way is the, the better way for me. I really should. Maybe this is another thing I could do to improve this aspect is start taking some more data, like take notes of how I felt after I matched. Did I feel like I entered the flow state? Did I feel like I played too quickly? Was I playing slowly? All of these things are, are really nice data points for me to be able to analyze where my optimal play state lies. Yeah. And I, I think that that is a thing that a lot of people could take away from this episode is that it's not just like you know, did I make a mistake in the match or whatever, but it is just like analyzing things like that too. I make it a big point to think about like, you know, did I submit the right deck? Could I build my deck better? Or were there like metagame shifts that I did not anticipate or anything like that? Like there are so many things outside of like actually just sitting down and physically like playing lands and casting spells and stuff that I don't think that people really analyze after the fact. And I think that those are basically the things that you can look at to try and improve. Yeah, I'm actually really, I'm, I'm already excited. I feel like I've already made a concrete like move from just having this discussion. I Next tournament I play, I want to take a notebook and just kind of detail not only, you know, my plays, which I've certainly done before. I've, you know, done tournament reports, kept logs of my plays, but I want to detail a little bit more of my emotional state and just kind of how I feel my thought process was moving throughout matches and see if I can glean anything from compiling that data over the course of a tournament. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's another thing that it's it's kind of just like breaking the fourth wall a little bit, you know, it's like a little bit, a little bit. It's, it's really difficult to try to do those analyzations and then also stay impartial because like when you're playing, you're just like, OK, like how am I how am I feeling? What am I now? Say? Yeah, yeah, you're right. All of these things are very difficult to both externalize and internalize. Like it's it's hard to get them out into the world and it's hard for you to evaluate them yourself. So, uh, you know, it's I've kind of picked a difficult metric to evaluate for my first problem. Well, but, uh, it, maybe what you're supposed to do is analyze things after the day. Okay, just like reflect on my day as a whole. Yeah, and in the meantime, just like out of sight, out of mind this stuff. Maybe, I like that idea. I could see both approaches working or maybe like something a little bit more... Uh, natural and less flow breaking in terms of a voice recording or, you know, maybe even a vlog, even if I'm not going to share it, just keeping it for myself to kind of get my thoughts out there. I don't know. I'm interested in all of these ideas to see if any yield some good results. Dude, uh, maybe we should, we should start vlogging for the Patreon. Oh, that's a really good idea. I'm going to write that down. I, I like that one. And I think the Patreon members will like that a lot. We've had a lot of awesome discussions this week about Patreon stuff we can do going forward. I think there's going to be some real exciting stuff coming down the pipeline soon. Dude, me too. Is is there anything else that you want to talk about in regards to this? Like, I, kn- I know that we went like pretty deep on it. You were just like, yeah, it's, you know, sometimes I miss some stuff in the here and now or whatever. And we just like went real deep. 
that's kind of how I roll. But uh, I, I think I hit on the basis of my problem. I don't have any concrete steps for the direct per turn decision making. I don't know. I mean, this seems like something maybe you've experienced too. I saw the grasp of darkness. Was there some of that going on in this case where you kind of were planning a few turns ahead and weren't really thinking of a clear picture of the board? So, or was it just like exhaustion at that point? So the night before this, this is the top eight approach were Amon Cat. Uh, top four, yeah. I grasp of darkness, a four or five creature, which is not great. Uh, that is kind of like one of those tunnel vision moments where I'm just like, this kills a creature. But the actual setup to that was like, after I drew into top eight, did all the paperwork, like started going home. I just wanted to go to sleep. Like I was exhausted. I had like a migraine for most of the day. I got back. I threw up. My pizza arrived. I had like half a slice of pizza. I threw up again. And then I was just like, yeah, okay, I can't take this anymore. And I just passed out. And then I woke up in the morning, threw up again. This was like 6 a.m. or whatever. And I don't have to play until 10. And it was like, my headache was like kind of gone. But like by the time I started playing again, it was back. So my mental state was not very good. So I don't know. I just like, I sat down to play against Ken and like that was game one. And on turn three, I could have cast Dark Salvation for one to kill a creature and make a 2-2. But instead I like weirdly, I don't know, just like circular logic and convinced myself to like play a Dread Wanderer and then Salvation for zero, which is like effectively the same thing, except I play the 2-1 instead of have a zombie token. I, I'm basically just like trying to figure out like how to use my removal spells and stuff and like what would be the most optimal way to do that. And then I do I make that play and I'm just like, well, that was horrendous. And then yeah, just at some point I like grasped his four five snake when I could have killed his four four Rishkar. And like I, I think I was losing this game anyway, but it was like I'm focusing on like, you know, how I kind of blew it on turn three and like how just like out of it I am and all this stuff, and then I just like grasped the wrong thing and I'm just like, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, so everything just kind of built on itself as as time went on and, you know, amplified the problem. Right, and then it was just like, okay, you know, got to get my head out of my ass, just like shake this off. I don't think with like how the draws were, I was going to win that game anyway, so that's okay, not a big deal. And certainly some part of me is just like, man, people just think I'm an idiot right now, but whatever. And I was just like, I have a good matchup against Ken, I don't want to squander this, so just ignore that stuff and try and tighten up, and like I won the next three games, so... Yeah, certainly the right approach when you make a mistake like that. And I'm pretty good at recovering from my boneheaded mistakes too. I, I just want to make less of them. That's my goal going forward. Oh yeah, for sure. And I mean, I I don't even know when the last time I made a play like that egregious was, right? But it's like, okay, well, this happens when I'm in top four of the Pro Tour. Cool. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, the worst, worst possible time. Yeah, so I, I just wanted to like crawl into a hole and die, but it was like, that's that's not the right thing to do, you know? Well, you made a good decision. You decided to win the Pro Tour instead. Good choice. Yeah, yeah. In in hindsight, I definitely like my choice. Okay, so so I think that's a good evaluation for that first problem. Do you want another one of my problems, or do you want to you want to drop one of yours on me now? Is yours related to this? No, I want to branch out from this a little bit. So maybe if you have one in the same vein, we could turn on yours. No, I thought we could just alternate. I think that would be pretty good. Okay, sure. One of my biggest issues for a long time, and kind of funny how we were talking about how I want a pro tour, but one of my issues for the longest time was like how I approach pro tours and just how I was generally pretty bad at them. And I think that there were a lot of things that led to that. Uh, the first, like when I was a kid, was definitely just like putting the pro tour and the players on a pedestal. And yes. it was just like, how would it feel to like win a pro tour and stuff like that? And it's just like, you can't really be thinking about all that stuff. 
I kind of like romanticize just like the whole idea of the the experience and everything and what it must feel like and all this stuff and like not to be like overly negative or whatever or like you know complain about winning a pro tour but it's just like you know my life didn't change and like granted I was like sick during the entire top eight or whatever but it's just like now that I've done it it's like it's not a big deal I think you're what you're describing is something that every single person has to go through in regards to the pro tour because otherwise you wouldn't strive as hard to get there. It wouldn't mean so much to you to finally like establish yourself on the pro tour. It, there has to be this air of like mystery and greatness about it as you strive for it. Otherwise you would never have the dedication it takes to reach there. I, I think I skipped it a little bit because I qualified for the pro tour. My first GP, I was incredibly lucky and it was just like I was thrown into it immediately. Like this was my introduction to competitive magic as I played my first GP and then I went off to the Pro Tour mm-hmm. and did okay. And it was like, oh, wait a second. I'm as good as all of these people. I've kind of built them up into this incredible thing. And I remember, this is really funny. I remember showing up at my first GP and I excitedly texted one of my friends when I saw Saito outside the site. And he's like, of course he's there. Everyone who plays magic is there. And I was like, oh yeah, I guess that makes sense actually. <laughs> And then I just kind of like snapped out of it and I was like, okay, it's time to play magic. But yeah, I get what you're saying. hundred percent. Yeah. So that has been mostly a process for me. And I think the, the difference is like when you sit down for round one, are you nervous or not? I, I am basically not nervous, but that has, that has changed, you know, like in the beginning I was not nervous. And then it was like, all right, like there's a pro tour. I'm excited. I want to play some good games of magic, but I I'm pretty sure I'm just going to get crushed. So then it's just like, well, I expect to go like two, four or whatever. So what, what is there to be nervous about? You know, like I'm just kind of like resigned to my fate at that point. And then it's like, okay, I start doing things a little bit better, start doing okay. And then it's like, oh crap. Like now I'm kind of nervous again, but yeah, now I'm in, now I'm at a point where it's just like, I sit down to draft and it's cool. And I feel like, you know, I've, I've been there before and it's not a big deal. It's like, I've played in enough tournaments like pro tours or, like GP top eights, SCG invitationals, stuff like that, where it's like, I've played enough high level magic that it, I, I just try and treat it all the same, you know, cause I've done it all before. Right. Yeah. I think that's a good approach. Every treat, every match of magic the same. And I think that you'll eliminate a lot of the nerves and stuff that kind of otherwise would come with it. Did, did it take winning the pro tour for you to really break that kind of up and down roller coaster of I'm nervous. I care a lot. I don't care. Have you broken it entirely at this point? Like, do you think that's something that's completely in your past and you'll never have that kind of swingy ride of emotions again? Well, like I said, the the nervousness thing has kind of ebbed and flowed depending on where my mindset is and stuff. Like, certainly when I came back from Wizards and Origins was my first pro tour back and everything, like, I was excited to play, but, like, I wasn't nervous, you know? Like, I just felt good about the whole thing, which was weird because I hadn't played a pro tour in, like, two years, you know? But yeah, now, like, I think this last year, like, maybe not Pro Tour Kaladesh because I owe Ford, but like the other three Pro Tours, I went like 9-7, 9-7, and 1. This last one, I went like 1-5 or whatever, but like the last three of last year all felt really good to me. It was like, I just want to make good decisions. Uh, I want to, like, make sure I'm prepared for draft, have a good constructed deck. It doesn't need to be too fancy, you know, like... I am not thinking how I used to where it's like, oh man, I have to like break it to beat these guys because that's just not true. You know, I played Moto Guy, Mono Black Zombies and won the, the won the PT, right? So like, you don't have to do anything fancy. Just play a good deck. There are plenty of people on the Pro Tour who are also going to trick themselves and try and be too fancy, you know? Do you think that 
that attitude could prove costly at some point. Because I I agree with what you're saying, but it does concern me to hear you say that and also know that like you do have the capability to break it. And there is a possible point in the future where you could close off that possibility because you've kind of taken this new approach to, you know, be consistent, have a good deck, don't try too hard. I definitely agree. But what is what is more plus EV, right? Like, how often does has someone broken it for a PT in it's rare. in the last five years, right? It's just like, it, it happens so low that like, I am willing to just write off a bunch of stuff without even trying it because it's a waste of my time. And I would rather have like a good sideboard plan for my mono black zombies deck. I think that that is more fruitful than, you know, working on a bunch of like improvised decks or whatever. You'd certainly be right in this environment. So I, I get what you're saying. I wonder if this is something that is kind of defined by your goals for the Pro Tour. Because I, I hear you say this, and it's kind of opposite to the approach I've taken to basically every Pro Tour I've played. But your goal is kind of different from mine, whereas yours is to put up consistent good finishes and kind of keep your train rolling and just make sure you have access to professional magic, mine is kind of like, I have nothing to lose here. Let's try and spike this pro tour and see what we can do. Right. I think the difference is, is that I have consistently shown that if I want to qualify for the pro tour, I will be able to. And that Mm -hmm. is certainly because like magic is my life. Magic is my job. Like this is all that I do. You know, like I get to travel at least like two weekends per month to play in Grand Prix and stuff. Like I am definitely going to make, or not definitely, but like almost certainly going to make enough pro points to hit gold at least every year. You know, I do not value any individual pro tour invite. I am willing to like throw it away by, you know, just like playing teamer or whatever. And, you know, maybe I will be the Shahar in some of them. And maybe some of them, I will be me and go one in five. I don't know. Like, I don't know how often like you play something like mono black zombies and you actually win the tournament. But like for our devastation, I knew that mono red was like the best deck and we just figured it out too late and didn't have a good list for it, even though it was like crushing magic online. And like, that might've been one of the instances where I'm just like ignoring it. Cause I'm just like, Oh, like budget moto deck, whatever, you know, but it ends up being the best deck, especially once you like, you know, put more rares in it or whatever. So maybe I missed yeah. out there because of it, but I think, Especially after like the zombies PT, it's like I should have just done the exact same thing, right? Taking the best moto deck and tuned it up. Yeah. Yeah, it would be a very successful strategy at these last few PTs for sure. It's really interesting to hear you kind of describe the freedom that you have in your deck selection. Like I felt really envious in that moment of you you having that knowledge that like this is something you'll always get to do and you can take that middle of the road approach where you just need a consistent finish and can trust in your sideboard selection as the way to can, kind of carry you to a good result. I don't know. I don't I don't get envious of the Pro Tour very often, but I, I was in that moment for sure. That sounds like a very liberating experience. Well, that might also just be me being ignorant too. You know, like maybe I'm I'm just in a very privileged position and I take it for granted and then I fall off or something. Like who knows? Any anything could happen. That's true. You don't know what the road's going to hold. And you know, it's funny you say that on a weekend after Shahar wins a GP because I think he was pretty close to falling off. Uh, and someone who had been you know a platinum pro in the past and had a lot of good finishes in the past few years. He, I'm pretty sure he's very close to falling off. He, he was off. He he top six. He was off. He top 16 in the last Pro Tour. That was his silver invite, I believe. Yep. And he did not have another invite. And then he, he top 16 to PT, which is his best PT finish. And then he won a Grand Prix. So like 
something is working for him. You know, I don't know if it's like pressure's off, right? Like he played in a bunch of tournaments and like he won worlds twice, but like the, the pro tour top eight always eluded him. And I don't know if pressure had anything to do with it. Like certainly when people are like, Oh, he's the best player without a PT top eight. And it's just like, well, there's nothing more that you should want to do at that point than just like get off that list. Right. Sure. But now he's just like, ah, it's my last pro tour. Like I'm just going to fall off and like move on with my life. And it just like, it gives you the the freedom. Like there's nothing to be concerned about, like nothing to be nervous about. You, you are free rolling this pro tour and he just gets to like do his thing, play magic, play well, win like top 16 is the tournament. And the next weekend he's just like, Oh, I had a like good PT finish. Like this grand prix is probably a free roll. And then he just wins the tournament. Yeah, not a, bad, not a bad spot to be in. As long as he keeps that attitude where like, you know, both that nothing nothing is going to be handed to him. So like he does have to work for it, but also that like he shouldn't be concerned with, you know, results or what people are saying about him or what's going on. Just like play magic. You are good enough mm-hmm. to be successful. Just do that. Whatever you've been doing, just do it. And don't worry about any of the other garbage. This is a really nice segue to my next weakness. Are, are we set on your weakness? Do, are we ready to move on to the next guy here? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of other stuff too that happened with Pro Tour stuff with like my preparation being bad and me playing bad decks all the time and, and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean. Well, let's, let's hit on that. How did, how did you, what did you do to break yourself of that habit? You look at some of my results and it's like, okay, I was playing Dark Depths. I was playing Cobblade. I was playing Delver. Like, I was just killing it with the best deck, right? Mm -hmm. That's what it looks like. To me, I know that that was not the case. I was playing the best deck that I would enjoy, which also happens to just be the best deck for like that five-year stretch. Fortunate. Yeah, it was was incredibly accidental. And the years after that, it's like, okay, I I played Flash and, you know, I I basically built that deck. Like Prozac built the initial like blue-white version. I played it in a Grand Prix, top eight of the GP, played another GP the next weekend and was like, I need to add red. So I did that, got 10th, played at the Pro Tour, top eight of the Pro Tour. And it's just like, yeah, I mean, it, it was one of the best decks and everything, but like it could have also just been like the 10th best deck and I would have kept playing it. And mm-hmm. it's it's just like kind of silly how it all worked out. And then past that, it was like, okay, well, Flash got really bad and I kept playing it. Uh, that was like after I top eight of the PT, went to these two European GPs to like try and get pro points to hit platinum and stuff. And I spent like $5,000 of the 10,000 that I made from top eight in the pro tour doing that and like fell short of platinum. And that's basically like why I took the Watsi job. And in those GPs, I played flash when it was really bad. And I played Shardless when it was really bad and I got crushed in both of them. Yeah. You have to learn to be objective. And for me, that means like, you know, playing teamer, playing mono red, playing zombies, just like playing these decks that I wouldn't normally play, even though, I don't know, like they're, they're just the best decks. They're the best decks for a reason, right? Like I could I could have continued playing like blue-black control or something, but it's like the deck is just not good anymore. You just have to like get to that point. So maybe this is the nebulous distinction and, and isn't actually worth anything, but would you say that you expanded your range or that you moved outside of your range? Do you kind of get like the differentiating point that I'm getting at with the question? Uh, I think that... I was always playing enough magic online and I was curious in enough strategies that like, like I played a Boros burn deck in standard at worlds one year and like, it was bad, but like, I think that I have enough experience with those sorts of decks and like green mid range decks that like, it's kind of expanding my range a little bit in that, like, you know, what, what defines your range? Is it like what you're willing to play or what you're actually good at playing? 
And I, I think it is like what it, what you're actually good at playing. So like, yeah, I, I think I've expanded my range a little bit to that degree just because I have more reps with like, you know, these mid-range decks or whatever and more reps with just actual beatdown decks. And playing Hearthstone and Shadowverse has definitely like helped me to play beatdown decks well, you know, because I just do a lot of attacking in those games. I think I've expanded my range and I've also been able to resist the urge to like play the decks that look fun to me. Okay, that makes sense. I've kind of railed against the concept of range in the past. I think it can be useful, but too often it's used as a crutch. Like people will just say, oh, that deck's outside my range, so I don't have to learn it, or I'm not going to bother learning it, or I can never succeed with it. And I think that's a really poor approach to have to magic. Like you have to have all the tools available to you at your disposal at all times um, and and ready to use all of them. Well, you can certainly have a successful career not going outside of your range. Like you can be Craig Wesco or whatever and still be successful, right? Like as long as you do one thing really, really well. I think it's much harder. I I do think you're right, but I I think it's much more difficult. And, you know, when you make that list of people, it's a much shorter list than the list of just kind of great magic players. Yeah, I uh, mean- The guys who kind of have the specialty. For every Wesco, there's someone like Shaheen who just handicaps himself in every tournament, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of people handicap themselves in in the same fashion. But that's kind of beside the point, just a little aside on my opinion of range. I mean, I, I do think that range is important. Like, it, it also just depends on what your goals are, right? Like, my goals right now are to just win as much as possible. And certainly I haven't been doing a lot of that as of late, but I think it'll come back around at some point. Like, I think that my decks and my deck lists have been pretty solid. Uh, so mm-hmm. I have no complaints there. It's just like, yeah, I'm, I'm just not winning. And there's maybe a couple of reasons for that. Like the Pro Tour, I think I blew it a bunch this last weekend in Portland. I think I just lost. Like I played some really good, like close games of Magic where I just came up on the, the wrong side of things, you know? Certainly can happen. Yep. And just being able to stay cognizant of those things and like not let it get you down it's like i mean just like two weekends ago i got second in nats or whatever three weekends ago so i'm certainly not losing all the time but like right now it kind of feels that way yeah it's kind of crazy to hear about your your losing streak fresh off having played worlds and you know having (laughs) (laughs) having just qualified for the wmcq but yeah it's it's kind of weird but Right now, I'm I'm testing a lot for the, the World Magic Cup, and I'm testing with like a, a few different weird decks because it's unified standard, and these are decks that I haven't played a lot with. So like, yeah, I'm I'm solidifying my range a little bit. I'm like understanding standard a little bit better and getting more familiar with like kind of these weirdo decks, and like who knows how that might help me down the line. You know, it's like it's all good. Having more information is good. Yep, I agree. More experience is always better. So yeah, trying for the pro tour, I'm basically just trying to like make better decisions and, you know, play better for the most part, but also just like have good solid plans and not try and do anything too fancy. And that has mostly been working out for me. And I've been like pretty proud of how I've come, like basically since I got back from wizards, I I think Mm -hmm. like my pro tour results, even though there are like some, some big stinkers in there, like my pro tour results post wizards have been way better than my results pre wizards. Do you think maybe getting the wizard's job plays into that in some ways? Because I know a lot of people who play Magic, there's always kind of like that carrot. And, you know, sometimes it's the Hall of Fame that people use their carrot. Some people, I think, have the wizard's job as their carrot. Did you, do you think maybe you relieve some of your pressure by having gone and done that? I think what happened was I went there and it was it was not perfect. And I missed Magic to the degree of like, oh, I didn't realize how not having this thing that I could constantly be thinking about would affect me. And it just like, it made me feel kind of empty, you know, like a a big part of my life was gone. 
And Wizards taught me a lot of things, just like, you know, how to approach formats and evaluate cards and stuff like that. So like when I left and was able to go to Pro Tour Origins, it was like, okay, like I am able to evaluate this draft format really well. I'm able to evaluate like the standard format and build good sideboard plans. And I just like knew what my goals were. I left Wizards and I started playing a bunch of like mono green devotion because I thought it was the best deck. And I think if I had not gone to Wizards, I would have just been playing like Jeskai the entire time and just like losing. Right. But yeah, it gave me a lot of perspective and help me realize what my goals were and then align my actions to fit those goals, which I think a lot of people aren't especially honest with themselves in that regard. So yeah, I, I think that's a big deal. And it's like once, if your goal is to win, well, don't play Marionette Master in standard or whatever, you know, like you can say you want to win, but do you? Because you're making that choice, right? Yeah, a lot of people handicap themselves with their decisions before they even sit down for the tournament. Yeah, and then they get upset because they aren't living up to their goals. Mm-hmm. And that's just vicious. So, all right, next one. You're number two. Okay, so my number two. I had been cured of this one. I had completely wiped this problem out of my game. I, I, I know it's hard to say you ever totally eliminate a problem, but I, I believe I had this problem completely solved and then you brought it back for me. So this is your fault, just so we're clear. Oh God, What's, what, what have I done? <laughs> I care what other people think about my ability in magic. Idiot. I know. I can say for a long time, uh, you know, certainly when I had first kind of broken onto the Pro Tour, I absolutely cared what people thought of me. Um, and I, I wanted to prove myself all the time and prove how smart I was and how good I was at magic. You know, as I spent time kind of around high level magic, that went away. And I was like, you know, I'm comfortable with who I am as a magic player. I'm fine with this. I have this niche and I, I am totally at peace with my place in the game. And then you came to me and you said, Hey, Brian, how about you replace these two former Platinum Pros that I hosted this cast with for a long time Look, and, man. and come in and you talk magic every week? Look, man, do you want me uh, to fire you from the podcast? Because I could do that. <laughs> no, I, I love doing this and I, I love the opportunity. And I honestly think I have, uh, I think I've acquitted myself well. I think people enjoy our rapport. I think we do a nice job every week. Uh, and I think, you know, the people who listen see that I generally know what I'm talking about, even if I don't have the results behind me that your former hosted. But man, I really want those results too. Like I just want to be able to say, look, look, I'm a platinum bro too. It's been hard transitioning to this role and I'm I've I'm starting to make peace with it and I am very happy with the way our cast is going, but it re-entered my mind. It was a problem that I had completely dealt with and eliminated and it was back for a little while. All right, so you want to know something that's like really badass? Yeah, sure. So last weekend I'm in Portland and Portland is like my area, you know, like I I lived in Seattle for like almost three years and I've been back for almost a year. So I feel like I see these people a reasonable amount, you know, but so many people like either just came up and talked to me in depth about the podcast or just like walked by high five me. And they're like, dude, love the podcast. And basically everyone I talked to was like, Brian is awesome. Well, look, I didn't bring this up to stroke my ego. I do appreciate that. I know, but I'm just telling you like, dude, it doesn't matter, you know? And And you're exactly right. It does not matter. And that's that's the core. This is the easiest problem to solve because it doesn't matter in life, in magic, in podcasts, in anything. You have to be comfortable with who you are. And I generally am. And, uh, you know, it slipped for a moment. I still have these moments where I like want to prove myself. I, I want to make it back to the pro tour. But honestly, I want to do that for myself more than anything else. And I, I'm realizing that 
after a few months of doing this. Right. And you should not be accountable to anyone else. You should be- That's true. Just accountable to yourself. That is the only thing that really matters. Like you are over there like beating yourself up about whatever and the, the people don't care, man. Like the information you give is good. Like your presence is good. Everything, everything has been awesome since you took over for majors. And like, granted, yeah, you had some big, big shoes to fill, but yeah, dude, it's, it's been good. And just do you, you know, figure, oh, figure out oh. what your goals are for you. And that's it. I'm with you. I'm with you hundred percent. And kind of, I wanted to share this more as a check both on myself, but as to our listeners too, because I know a lot of our listeners are at that level where they're trying to break into the pro tour. And they're, they're trying to prove themselves week in, week out. They want to be known as one of the best players in their area. And they want the other good players in their area to you know, take them seriously and treat them as a peer. But I, I think you get so much more by just being at peace with your place in the game and just being who you are and letting kind of any accolades or recognition just be like icing on top of the cake. It's not what's important. Your enjoyment of the game, your fulfillment with the game, that's what's important. And if you can't take pride in your own accomplishments, regardless of what other people think, then it's really hard to succeed both in magic and in life, I think. Yeah, for sure, man. And like also, like we were talking about Shahar and kind of like his his pro tour story and how he fell off and now he's killing it. That is a thing. Like if you just like remove all these stressors and added pressure and you're just you treat it like a free roll, like life is a free roll, man. I find it really difficult to get like upset about basically anything these days, just because it's like, it's so lucky that I'm even alive, you know? And like, certainly fortunate that I get to do the things that I do and everything. It's like, how can I like get mad or, or just like be stressed out about stuff? Like everything's going to be okay. Like, it doesn't matter if like my car gets towed or like my house gets broken into or whatever, like I'm going to live and things are going to be fine. So it's just like, whatever. And for, for magic, it's the same thing. It's just like, like we're, we are all privileged to some degree that we get to play this game and we have enough like time and disposable income and stuff like that. And it's, it's just great. And if you remove all the stressors and everything from it and just make good decisions, eventually good things will happen. But the problem is, is that, you know, people want the respect now they want the results now. And that's just not how it works. No, exactly. Right. And you know, I agree with everything what you're saying. I think your approach to life is the spot on correct one. Usually the one I can take, but I think even when you kind of have solidified that that's going to be your approach going forward, there's still times where we all slip back into these patterns of, of like self-doubt and everyone has some degree of imposter syndrome, right? Yes. Like I think everyone carries that throughout their days. But, you know, I think addressing that head on and just acknowledging it is the best way to deal with it. Like, yeah, everyone feels like this sometimes. And uh, the best thing you can do is just take solace in your own performance and move forward. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. And, you know, as far as you saying like, oh, I, I was cured of this. And it, it's pretty similar to me talking about the pro tour stuff with like me sitting down and like, for round one and being nervous, like it comes back eventually, you know, like things change. It's not like you shake these things and then they're just gone forever. It's not how it works. Like something changes. Yeah. A triggering event, you know, something, something changes in your life. And, you know, also for me, it was kind of like this translated into my professional life too. I started a new job recently and it's a type of law I've never practiced before. And you have those seconds of doubt, like, what am I doing here? Do I even know what I'm talking about? And then you just have to kind of find yourself, find your place and, and trust in your own abilities. And that's what getting through is all about. Yeah, man. So we solved the problem. Boom. Cross that one off the list. Well, it's gone. I mean, 
you you can identify the problem and then think about potential solutions. But as far as like putting it into practice, like I don't believe you that it's gone. It's it's hard. To, it's honestly hard to say because most of the time when I'm like, man, I really want to get back to the pro tour. It, it's for myself, but it's hard to say like what percentage is actually for myself and what percentage is like you want others to be proud of you and you want you know to be able to share that accomplishment with other people. It's like. It's hard for me to believe there's such a thing as a completely altruistic act, right? Because even when you're doing something entirely out of the desire to help another person, you still feel the good in helping that person, right? So you still get a little piece of any altruism. And in the same way, it's like as much as I can say that these achievements are meant to be just for me, still a lot of how I perceive those achievements is based around how the people around me are reacting to them getting the likes on Facebook and thumbs up. <laughs> Those things matter. Unfortunately, we've trained ourselves to make them matter. God, I hate um, that stuff. I, I hate, I hate that it matters. I hate it. I know I, we all do. Yeah. It's a, it's a sad truth about how we operate now, but I do honestly believe that the bulk of my motivation is from myself at this point, which I think is a good, healthy place to be in. I definitely agree. All right. So I'm not sure how to actually uh, tackle this as a weakness. And certainly this like kind of ties into some of my strengths or whatever, but it's like, I think I'm right a lot. Okay. So people who even know me really well don't really know this about me. They probably just think that like I'm very opinionated or whatever. But basically how I operate is if I don't know something, I will tell you that I don't know. Uh, I'm not going to offer up a like something that I believe to be like a concrete answer to whatever unless I think I have the answer. And I don't think I have the answer unless I've like done my due diligence, right? So when I'm like, Teamer is the best deck, this is the list, this is how you're supposed to sideboard, it's because I truly believe that it is 100% correct. And I've I've like done the research to back that. I will basically never say anything along those lines. You know, like people will be like, oh, what should I play in modern or whatever? I'm like, I have no idea. The end. So is the flaw here that you're kind of, you're kind of limiting what you're putting out there? by only asserting things with like 100% confidence? Is is that what the concern is? That you're cutting off ideas before they kind of gestate into, you know, coming to full bloom because you don't have 100% authority in stating them? Yeah, I mean, well, the, the problem is that like, I will say things and believe them to be 100% true. And my track record is good enough that I think it is plus EV to actually, you know, believe what I believe to be true, right? But like, sometimes mm-hmm. I am wrong. And the, th- the thing that I've tried to embrace within like the last couple of years is that if, you know, if you've ever been wrong before, realize that this might be one of those times, which is a P silly quote. I actually don't see this as a problem with a big caveat. And that's how you are able to, how difficult is it to prove to you that you're wrong? Do you carry this through to an unhealthy conclusion or when presented with factual evidence, are you willing to step down from this kind of like a hundred percent certainty? Well, Mr. Attorney, uh, there's there's reasonable doubt, you know, yeah. and you, you got to provide that to me. And a lot of people, uh, especially like the the Shahars and the Seths and stuff, they're just like, no, I think that this is true. And it's like, well, prove it to me. And they're just like, I can't. Yeah, I find that incredibly frustrating. Yep. For me, I can show my work every single time because I have done the due diligence and like that is how I have processed the information is by like breaking it down like so. You know, it's like when we're talking about like Vizira mini faces in the team or mirror or whatever. And I'm just like, this is why I would never play four of that card, etc. I'm not just like, oh man, four seems like a lot. Like you should definitely pl- only play two or whatever. Like I don't think that that yeah. is particularly helpful. And I'm never going to form an opinion between like two and four without actually having the reps to back it up. 
it does take a lot of work to prove it to me because I know that I've done the work, right? I, I think that's fine. I honestly don't see this as too much of a weakness. I think it can complicate interpersonal relationships. Yes. I think that people can get very frustrated by people who demand that kind of level of proof. And I, I, I think this is a problem that maybe we share. Whereas I'm willing to kind of take a lark a little bit more often than you are. I do think that what I require to change my mind once I've come to a determination is probably a little too high in a lot of cases. And I think people get frustrated with me because of it and vice versa. I can get frustrated with other people who I feel, you know, are asserting something and aren't effectively proving their claim. Yeah. The interpersonal relationships thing definitely has come to a head a few times where people are just like, you just always have to be right. And it's like, no, I only take stances on things that I am like 99% sure that I'm right on. Mm. Like there's a difference, right? But you all have the friend who like, is just like, I'm always right, blah, blah, blah. And then you're like proof that you're wrong and they still refuse to back down, right? And people like kind of put me in that box because I am right and I don't change my opinion because no one ever provides me reasonable proof otherwise. So you're speaking in a a lot of absolutes. I don't think you mean them in absolutes. I I think that- I I don't, I don't. I'm I'm certainly being hyperbolic to an extent. Yeah, Which which is fine. I mean, like- that's kind of what we do as podcasters. Our arguments are a lot more interesting if we're hyperbolic. But I see the struggle. I do think that anyone who has kind of that type of personality and what you're describing is like kind of a lawyer's personality, again, asserting that you'd be a very good television star. Hell lawyer. yeah. But I don't think there's a huge flaw with demanding kind of that level of proof from people. I do think it's going to cost some relationships in the long run. But I also think that when you form a bond and like, someone gets into your kind of trusted zone, you're more likely to form a deeper connection and like kind of a greater sense of trust with someone when you're like, okay, this person's on the same wavelength as me. I can take their opinion because I know that they're doing the same due diligence that I would before I offer opinion. And also, I guess the other flaw I could see is that like, you're kind of only fighting battles on your terms. And I think that frustrates people. Like you're only fighting about things that you're hundred percent sure about where a lot of people will fight about anything, right? Right. And it looks the same to them. Yes, that's exactly right. The perception of it is that you're doing the exact same thing they are, except you always have to be right. It's like, no, I'm just not engaging on things that I'm not likely to be right about. Yep. So uh, when I was living with Gabe Walls, he made made a lot of prop bets. Like he was a poker dude. He was was a big gambler and he would try to make a lot of prop bets. And basically like he learned eventually that like whenever I would accept him, like accept a bet of his, like he would be like, oh, this guy top eighted this tournament or whatever. And I'm just like, yeah, I'll, I'll bet you that he didn't or whatever. He was just like, okay, never mind. Like he learned, <laughs> only bet he learned that I only bet him. I only gambled quote unquote when I knew I was right. And he eventually stopped. My wife has learned the same thing. <laughs> she no longer makes like those joking bets with me anymore. She knows if I'm like, all right, whatever you want to put on it, that's fine. Then I'm doing it with 100% certainty. Yeah, exactly. So that that's the kind of thing I'm talking about where it's like, I only engaged him when I was right, when I knew I was going to win. And it's it's the same thing in life and everything, but it is very frustrating for people. And like, certainly when I'm on a team or uh, when I'm trying to discuss decks or a format with other people who also do not think the same way as me. Like, I I think that that's kind of why majors and I got along so well. And like, to some degree, you too, you know, it's like, we are always just searching for the truth. And that's it. Majors and I could have a discussion about it. You and I can have a discussion about it. And then at the end of it, like, then we decide what the truth is, right? And, And certainly we come in with whatever our opinions are. 
and what we believe to be true, but it is capable of being swayed as long as the other person is willing to engage you on the level that you need to be engaged on. So what do you think the takeaway is from this as far as like improvement of a weakness? Like, is this something that you'd like to back away from? Because I know for me, this is like kind of a pretty big part of my personality. And I'm not convinced that it's necessarily something that I want to lose. Maybe it's something that I want to soften a little bit and, you know, make it a little bit easier for people to interact with me on these type of issues, but not really discard. Yeah, I think uh, most people, including ex-girlfriends, would likely say that this is one of my biggest flaws. Okay. And I, I think that I can preface every interaction with, like, this is how I operate. I am not being combative for the sake of doing so. But, you know, like, I am pretty sure I'm right. These are the the things that you need to do to prove me otherwise. I don't think that that is particularly fair either. Like, I should not have to, like, or they should not have to, like, you know, lawyer me every time we disagree on something, right? But yeah, I mean, maybe maybe my approach is just uh, a little too stern, a little too stubborn. And maybe that's kind of why it's off-putting to people. I don't know. It, there, there is def- yeah. There's definitely work to be done. Uh, and I just don't know like how to actually approach it. I, I think for for me, one of the biggest things that has helped uh, me in this regard is that I've embraced apologies a lot more. And like that sounds like kind of a very simple thing to do. And you know, in some cases, it doesn't feel all that impactful. But just kind of like I now recognize when I take an aggressive tone in an argument just because like I'm passionate about it. Not that I actually like have aggressive feelings or like I'm trying to belittle the opposing side of the argument. I just feel strongly and I'm confident in what I'm saying. And sometimes that can become overbearing in my tone. And now I just apologize in that spot. And I find that that does a lot for, I, I think it kind of gives people a better picture of who I am. And it makes me feel a little bit better too. Like maybe that's a little selfish, but I don't feel like as much of a jerk at the end of a conversation if I'm just like, you know, I guess I, guess I took that a little far. I was a, a little aggressive in how I approached it. So I don't know. Your mileage may vary, but something to consider as far as softening those rough interpersonal edges, which are super important in magic, by the way. Like this sounds like it's moving into kind of life advice. And I think all of this stuff to some extent is, but at the same time, like your connections in magic are very, very important. They're very impactful on your success. They're impactful on your enjoyment of the game. So, you know, if it's something to consider, if that's kind of something that's lacking in your magical picture. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if, if people view you as like a stubborn, hard-headed person, like they're not going to want to work with you regardless of how good your ideas are, you know, it's just, it's going to be too frustrating. So very true. I definitely agree with that. And I, I did bring up like the team aspect of it. And I think, I mean, currently I am teamless, but before I had issues with it. And recently I think people knew me well enough and I was getting better at articulating like where I was coming from and why uh, to the point where like, you know, people understood me and understood that I was only taking these hardline stances on things that I believed to be true. And I wasn't just being argumentative or whatever. Like there are enough people out there like that. Ben Stark is one of them. Like Ben Stark and Paulo just, you know, will argue about anything for hours. But I won't do that unless it's a thing where, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm right. So, yeah, it's 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 kind of weird and everyone is different and there are certainly relationships where it's like you might under not understand why the other person is, you know, how they are or you might not understand like where they're coming from or whatever, but you'll figure it out eventually. And I think if people are more upfront about stuff like that, and also with like the apologies and stuff, like 
if what you are saying or doing is like clearly unnerving some people, then, you know, I think that is worth an apology for sure. Sure thing. One of the things I've been thinking about, certainly it is uh, relatable to magic for a bunch of different reasons, but it's mostly a life thing. I, I agree. But when, when magic is a bigger part of your life as it is even more so with you than it is for me, they, they just overlap. Like your life things are magic things. They, they have like overlapping interests, overlapping concerns, and they're going to cross paths a lot. Um, so I, I think this advice goes to both an equal measure. Absolutely. Okay. So we, we only talked about like two things each. So if, pe- if yeah. people like this, I'm sure that we can continue doing this like, you know, part two, part three, et cetera. Uh, maybe at some point we will get around to talking about strengths also and what kind of knowledge we can glean from that. You know, I don't know. I, I think this was really fun. And obviously this is not as easy as like, oh, here's problem and here is solution. But I do think that just talking about it helps. Yeah, I'm I'm really interested to see the response to this. I, I think it was very useful for me. I hope that it rings true for a lot of our audience. And we're kind of like, we've we've built up some credibility now. We're asking them to go on a journey of faith with us. I think our audience is ready to take it. And I, I hope that, you know, people share their own kind of lists of improvements they're looking for. And I hope they connect with this episode and it's something we can do again. Yeah. I thought it was a, a nice change of pace from this is what you should play in Teamer this week, but also keep playing Teamer this week. It's still good. Uh, I don't know. I got I got beat up pretty bad. I would change my list a little bit, but I still like my deck, man. I don't know. Yeah, I played Teamer in a PPTQ. I lost in the top four, but no! that felt fine. It feels like maybe there needs a little, to be a little bit more help versus Mono Red at this point. I think that matchup has turned maybe a little bit in their favor, but Shahar crushed Mono Red in his championship performance. So uh, small sample sizes all around. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, Shahar's list and mine were both pretty close, but I agree that Mono Red needs some help and you need to change how, or at least I need to change how I was approaching the matchup a little bit, but we can, we can get into that at a later point. So we were talking about like Patreon things that we we're going to do. And uh, I don't know if this is like a thing that we'll start doing on the Patreon or not, but I thought that even though we're going pretty far over that, like I asked some people in the discord, if they had any questions for us to uh, sign out the show with, which I think is like kind of an interesting idea. Yeah, I like it. A couple people, uh, Yo Man 5 and McDerv posted questions that were pretty similar, basically just like favorite deck that didn't make the cut in this format. And like maybe like what deck was a piece short of greatness. And I think that question is really cool for modern. So like what is a modern deck that maybe like a brew that you have that you think could just use like an additional piece and then it would be like a cool deck to have around? Oh, geez. Um... I think like Merfolk is super close and maybe it even has crossed that line. I know that's not a super exciting answer. It's not doing anything really different. It's just some creatures, but it's got a nice disruption suite. A really great Aether Vile deck is kind of like a big piece of an eternal format. And it seems to me that it's going to get the pieces it needs to maybe finally jump up into tier one at this point with this next set with Rivals of Ixalan. So I'm going to answer Merfolk. Okay, I'm going to say... Either Enduring Ideal or Spirits. Oh, Enduring Ideal is such a good answer. Damn it. So, yeah, I don't know if if Enduring Ideal needs, like, a better defensive tool, more acceleration, maybe a, a, a better, like, bomb enchantment to search up, like, Solitary Confinement, that sort of thing. Like, there's a lot of different things that it could use. Uh, but spirit Spirits, I think, is missing, like, either something for, like, the Tallow Wisp version. So, like, maybe, like, a big white aura for Shining Shoal. Uh, or just like a good aura to search for in general and just like a good one mana creature. 
Yeah, that's the cool thing about modern is like all these kind of fringe archetypes are just one little tiny print, especially when you're talking about things that are kind of toolboxy, like something like a Tallow Wisp deck or Enduring Ideal. They just need one card and then it completely changes everything. And I thought like maybe Overwhelming Splendor might have been a pretty key piece in the Enduring Ideal decks. I don't think it is. I don't think that quite you know, crosses the bridge that it needed to cross, but it's close. There's, it's only a couple prints away. I strongly considered playing that deck at a pro tour. I was very close to playing it um, until I found ad nauseum, which was like <laughs> a way better combo. Deck. I got, but, I got to play enduring ideal at a pro tour when it was good. And for the longest time, like maybe 25 pro tours or something, like I thought it was the best deck I ever played at a pro tour. Uh, so this must've been like champions or whatever that block standard, um, like post cold snap, maybe. Oh, no, no, no. This was in uh, extended. This was the one that Remy for, oh, this was wow. the one that Remy 48 won. So I think this may have been during one of my downtimes with the game where I wasn't playing very actively. I do remember like the standard post cold snap enduring ideal deck, but I don't remember the deck you're talking about. Okay. Yeah, it was, it was extended. You had invasion Sacklands and like Lotus bloom, burning wish, all sorts of nonsense. And it was like the first time I ever really played a combo deck in a pro tour and it just felt incredible. That sounds sick. So yeah, that, that is it. I, I, I want that deck to be good. Even if it's like fair mono white control, whatever, or if it's just like, mono hate enchantments whatever i just i think it's kind of sweet it could get there for sure it's only a print away. yeah there's no like big spell deck in modern really all right that's it uh should, should i sign us out you're you're in charge of the sign out this Ooh, week okay that's game Good luck.